Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. Welcome back, folks. Another episode of EMS on the Mountain. As always, Mike and Sean. And if you could see Mike laughing off camera, you yourself might laugh. Say it. Right, you want to. Like moron. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to our next episode. This is going to be number two in our uh, medical ops planning series. We may get a third one. We'll see. If not, it's two. So this one, we're going to talk about the medical response plan. And this is the detailed plan or detailed portion of an operations plan that discusses specifically the medical aspects. There might be uh, other similar plans that talk about all kinds of other different pieces of an overall operational type plan. This is the specific medical response plan. Just the, like last episode, same caveats exist. This is just uh, one example of one set of tasks and components to it. There are many of them out there. A lot of agencies use a very agency-specific one. Use whatever you've got. This is just, for those that aren't very familiar with them, just kind of a general orientation. All right. So so there's a lot of medical response plans, but this is yours? Is that kind of how this works? Like, uh, I won't say this one is mine. So, so I used to write these or versions of them a lot when I was an instructor. And we used to just have a ginormous dry erase board. Like I'm talking like a mm. six by eight foot dry erase board that Al had the key component areas already permanently etched into it. And then you would just yep. fill in the blanks with dry erase marker for the specifics for that particular event or activity. So that one was super easy, right? And then there are some templated versions. Like if you support a certain activity every year, like you and I do, right? Not that we have to fill out the medical response plan portion, but if we did, we'd do one good one once, and then the next year we just update it as things change, if they do at all. If nothing else, you just change the dates and you're good. So yeah, this is just one variation. You can add more, take less, whatever. Right. So most often, let's talk about it. this is 2023. So there's a good chance that you will receive one of these in an electronic format. This is also usually available in a printed version and distributed to people just because the nature of wilderness and austere stuff, you might not always have your electronic device or connections to the internet to bring this information down. So having hard copies available is beneficial in certain circumstances. And so what is the medical response plan, right? So it's used to articulate the, all the needs and outline all the information necessary in order to affect patient care. Short of actually doing your patient care piece, right? I'm not going to tell you how you're going to do manage the cardiac arrest. We're going to assume you already know how to do that as the paramedic, but this is going to tell you what sort of package or events are going to go along with that. And basically this is going to go from, we'll, we'll call it phase zero, like nothing's going on all the way until your response, your contact with your patient, whatever your treatment and modalities are with that, and then transport to definitive care. So it can encompass a lot of different pieces. So some of the key areas that are going to be in here. Uh, and again, this is this document is also going to be read by non-medical team people. Like so if you have an overall like expedition or trip leader, 
he's going to be reading this. This may or may not be provided to clients or other participants of an event. Sometimes people like to do that. So we would say, hey, look, we're taking good care of you. Look at all the things we've gone into. So you can outline who is the medical team. Is it going to be just you, single asset guy who's going to do all the response and all the care for all the things? Or are there many of you? Is there a physician, a PA, you know, a nurse, an MP, whatever you might have with you? But who's on the team? Probably going to outline some of the, a little bit of the leadership hierarchy within that as well, plus determine specific team roles for certain things, right? Who's your primary responder? I know for one of the events, Mike and I support each one of the training teams designates who their primary medical responder is. It's usually me on my team. Uh, although last year, I was able to shirk those duties and pass it off to somebody else, which was nice. That just means my pack got to be a few pounds lighter because I didn't have to feel obligated to carry my medical kit. So what is the minimum kit that should be taken? So like every responder should have at least this bare minimum group of equipment with them when they go to any call. Could also be the bare minimum kit or the minimum loadout for support of that particular event. And then it should outline. So does that, does that set expectations? Like as part of this plan, we know that the, the designated responders are supposed to have this, this, and this, so you can make plans around that? Or is that more of like a packing list for... Yes. Right. Okay. So I'd say it's all the above, right? So you know that if you are a responder for you know, each... Let's say, we'll say you're supporting some event, like an endurance race or Boy Scout Jamboree, I don't care, whatever. And you've got three designated medical response teams. Each one of those teams has a BLS bag, maybe... There may be only one ALS bag for the thing. But each one of those BLS bags, each team is responsible for having one of those with them at all times. And then each of those bags should be all packed with the same stuff, ideally in the same place. And that kind of goes into you and I's mantra of why we try to keep our bags matched so that if we have other responders come, I know that if I get one of these bags, I know exactly what's in it and what additional equipment I may need. So it's kind of a bit of both. It's a kind of a packing list saying that your response bag will have at least these things. Now, it's probably not going to go down to you'll have six one-inch by four-inch Band-Aids, but it's going to have your generalities in some... Uh, there will be somewhere, should be, an actual itemized gear list for those specific bags, but you're probably not going to find that here within this plan. You're just going to find some of the generalities of that. And then again, so you know what kit you go like. So if you go in, like, say... You might say that if you're doing, we'll just go with, you're supporting a Boy Scout event. So you're on the archery range. We need basically some basic trauma stuff, some way to take general patient history and vital signs. Nothing too significant for the chance that somebody gets cut or, God forbid, is impaled with an arrow. Now, if you're going to support, (laughs) hey, you never know, kids, bows and arrows, things happen. Ricochets. And if you haven't seen an arrow kind of glance off something and go a different direction, off towards the side, it happens. It does happen, yeah. Uh, bullets do that too, ironically. Yeah, say bullets, splashbacks, yeah. some other stuff. Another one, maybe they're doing a, like a rock climbing wall or a rappelling station. Well, now we might need to make sure we have some things for orthopedic injuries to, for some splinting and maybe some more pain management involved with that. You know, like I said, it could vary. Like, so this type of kit goes to these general things. And then if you're at a base station, you have kind of the everything big box full of stuff that you might need. Or maybe you're supporting rafting trips and it might change out your loadout a little bit just based on what you foresee as your most common injuries, things like that. 
So, you know, when do you have to have more is kind of the big one. And that, again, that might just change on different events and different days, tremendously on the actual event or the activity you're supporting. This could be your, your basic aid bag is your basic aid bag all day, every day for the duration of this thing. There's never a time when you're going to take more things with you, vice less things. So then you start getting into some of the other pieces in there. What happens? So if somebody breaks an ankle, here's our plan response. Keep it simple. It's going to be, oh, this will be a BLS crew response, depending on whether location, they might take the truck and they're just going to go do the initial stabilization, splint it up, give them some NSAIDs and off they go. Then you can build up into a little more detail involved in there. Okay. So now this event has occurred. This is the general response package that's happening. This is some of the additional equipment that you're going to need. And here's the route you're going to take from this location to the nearest hospital. And then the next one might be be the a next step up from that. And this is where it could be very specific. So if this event occurs, Joe, our lead paramedic or our lead guide here, he's going to become the incident commander because maybe this is pretty significant injury or illness. Response team alpha is going to go affect the rescue. Now, how big is this team? Whatever you say it is. And then Jay, he's going to alert the local hospitals, contact our local HEMS crew, and Bob's going to drive the truck down to the LZ and make sure that everything is good to go, right? So you can put as much detail into some of these things as you want. I often, it is my experience that leaving it up to chance is sometimes not the best plan because everybody's scrambling. Everybody assumes somebody's got the car keys to the truck and is getting ready to uh, take you and your patient from site A down to an LZ or start driving you to the hospital. Meanwhile, you're like, okay, let's go. And nobody's actually jumped up front to start driving anywhere. So I'm I'm of the opinion that sometimes putting that extra information, although it can seem a bit excessive depending on what you're doing, sometimes actually a good plan. Who is the designated driver for a response? Who is his alternative? Maybe he's the guy injured or maybe he's he drank some non-audible water and he's not available at the moment for various reasons, right? So putting some of that information in there can be very beneficial, but not necessarily every time. And again, situation will depend, right? So what I'm hearing you say is you start from like general response and then you elevate, right? And then you get into more detail. And then if it turns out to be like the super unlikely thing, you have a pretty detailed framework for, hey, if this is like an all hands on deck, we need to know that like this person or this role, whichever, it could be role-based or people-based, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Is going to do this function, right? It's yep. It sounds very traditional fire service based if you have a what? relatively sized fire service that has three plans we we're just talking before the the i hit the record button right like for this type of auto accident that gets dispatched in this manner you get these resources right it's taking that concept yeah, exactly if you're, if you're working in a traditional fire service but you're you're scoping it to this the set of resources you have and the mission requirement right you're not going to have a 14 or 18 or 22 you could, but it's unlikely. You'd end up with like 22 or 30 different mechanism type or, or dispatch types for a wilderness expedition. But you're going to have somebody drank non-potable water. We're going to have a plan for that. Somebody fell into a vent and they've disappeared under the, the mountain. That was a horrible way of saying that. I couldn't think of the word festoon. <laughs> we and I was trying to think of festoon. Crevasse. <laughs> Crevasse. Well, I was, uh, my head was going to 
hey, if we need to build festoons, which is a skill set for building an anchor on an alpine environment for those that don't yeah. know what it is. If, for example, Bob, I always call him Bob. If Bob is like a really good rigger and Bob and Steve are the two guys we have that are doing medical stuff. Well, in that situation, Bob's got to go rig. So Steve's got to do the medicine, right? Because yeah. Bob, we need Bob to be doing the rigging because he's like the rigger dude, right? Yeah. That sort of point. Exactly. Yes. That's okay. exactly it, right? Yeah. All right. So I now think... that I already knew what you were saying, but I said it in, <laughs> in what I call Mike speak, AKA let's make it as dumb as possible. <laughs> how do we develop these things? How do we, uh, how do we get to these answers? First and foremost, it is our opinion that you should not be trying to build this in a vacuum. It turns out in general that if you're making a plan to go do a thing, alpine expedition, take people kayaking, go for a hike with your family. Yep. This doesn't often happen, but there are people out there that do these. You've kind of thought about the general plan, right? So use that to your advantage. You should not be starting from the word zero, building your medical plan. You've done a general analysis of what you plan to do. We're going to be out here doing this expeditionary thing, doing this trip, mapping this or going for a hike or climbing a mountain or whatever the case may be. And we think it'll take this long. And we have this general framework. So then you can use that general, as Sean would call it, mission analyses of what it is we're attempting to achieve and break that down into different phases. First off, travel, right? How are we going to get in and out? And then you take the in and out prospect and you say, okay, we know we have these resources coming in and out, but in the event that somebody gets a boo-boo or worse, what's our travel plan? How do you plan to get in and get your stuff in for whatever you're doing? Once you get to where you're going, that would be your on-site plan, i.e., this is our base camp. These are the resources. Think about this like uh, a mountain expedition of some sort, right? We have gotten all of our, our pelican cases and all the things up the mountain or sherpa it in or got heloed in or whatever the case may be, right? We've established our beachhead, to use pseudo-military term. I don't know if that's actually a general term or not, but... It is for the naval services. Yeah, so, like, <laughs> that's fair. So we've established our beachhead, right? We know where we're going to and from every day or every couple of days in the execution of whatever our initial mission analysis was, or our mission plan, right? Nobody goes on an expedition with a plan to get hurt. This is the starting point for the day-to-day -day operations. What do you have here? Who's on site? Who is going out with the, the, the team? Are you leaving resources behind? Even simple things like, we don't usually plan to leave people behind, but if it turns out that we have somebody that has had bad water or just gets a tummy bug, you don't want to leave somebody that's slightly dehydrated and got the poos alone for, say, 12 hours while the rest of the team goes and does stuff. So what's our on-site plan for in the event that somebody needs to be monitored or cared and fed for? What's the rest of the plan? How does this change, right? But you're starting from a point of on-site. Like, what do we have on-site? What's available? And then what variables could affect that plan. So just to recap now, number one, how are we going to get the stuff in and what are we coming with? Two, what do we have available? And what are some of my alternative plans once we get to the, the established point of reconnaissance or whatever we're doing? And then what are you going to bring with you every day, right? Your operations planning, right? If I brought I'm just going to pick a random example here. Let's, well, I'll use the one we always use in all the podcasts, right? If I brought a cardiac monitor with me, 
and the requisite <laughs> requirements to charge it and power it and such. My daily operations away from camp are not going to include haul the life pack all the way out into the environment, right? We're just not going to do that. So we might have a cardiac monitor for the purpose of monitoring a relatively sick person or a relatively, not even relatively, you're either injured or not, an injured person at our on-site base camp. But I may not want my plan to include, let's schlep this thing out into the, the area we're doing operations every day, right? So what are you planning to take with you? Who's in charge? That goes back to what Sean was talking about. Who's who's doing what role should bad things happen on this subset or entire scope of the team when we're away from base camp? And what resources do we have? Let's make sure we have a clear checklist and we know we're bringing the right stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. Am I making sense or, or am I just yammering at this point? No, well, yes, all the above, I think. So big ones like, right, as okay. you mentioned, your travel piece, what's going on? As we're driving to or from this initial site, our operations right there on site, like for this example, our central base camp, and then Mm -hmm. operations if we move away from our safe. So, you know, like you were talking about, so we're going to go look at some fumaroles today. So we're going to hike and travel away from the central base camp. So then, okay, so what gear goes with us on that? And then what's our response plan when we're away from camp? You know, and then if there's any changes like, oh, wait, we've now spotted this thing. Right. So Luke Skywalker spotting a meteorite that's landed near here and he's going to go check it out. Wasn't part of the initial plan he was doing. Turns out it was not a good idea to go look for that thing. But, you know, <laughs> so you got to have your little branch plans and be yep. prepared for those. So, yes. Okay. And I think I, I, I turned your rambling into something more coherent. But yeah. Yes. Thanks for turning my, my, my relatively dumb musings into something people can understand. So now alternates happen, right? Do we have a plan for an alternate? And maybe we don't, right? Just as an aside, maybe we can't write, like, it's almost, I would call it highly improbable. I won't ever say impossible, but it's highly improbable. You're going to write down every variable, right? Like, oh, Luke Skywalker, right? But before Luke Skywalker goes running off to look at that cool thing that crashed over there, like, everybody pause for a second. All right, hang on. If it turns out that thing's not a great idea. Do we have a plan for whoever's staying back or what yeah, the I mean, plan What happens is? if there's a Wampa attack? I mean, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> what, we were what planning on our primary medical guy. Jeez, right? Like, that's not the best. So it's also a matter of like pausing for just a second saying, okay, cool. Here's the plan now because Luke's going to go do something stupid and he should have just stayed home and listened to, to Aunt May or what was, what was his aunt's name? Yeah. No. Oh, that's fine. No, no, no. That's my bad. Yeah. I'm a little tired. Uh, I should have probably prefaced this with guys I'm on duty. And also, yeah, I'm a little tired, which is just bodes really well for any patient care. I may need to render for the remainder of my shift. Huh? Hey, he can't even think straight. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So, okay. We know what we're doing. We know what our plan is. We've generally got plans for getting there, being there and taking care of people while we're there. Now we need to know what all the externalities are. Your plan should include, we we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast, but available hospitals in the area. What are their levels? This is not the sort of thing. It becomes second nature for EMS providers that work in a given jurisdiction to be like, I know exactly where my level one, my level twos are. For expeditionary medics or or wilderness medics, you may not always know all of those things because you might be going to a relatively foreign place and you should probably spend a little time researching those things to determine the answer to those questions that you might need to know should you need to get someone to a place that has doctors and people with the ability to provide a high level of care, then you can. Yeah. Two. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say with that one too, you and I, 
with our particular response area when we're doing our wilderness gig, right? We've got like five hospitals that we go through our brains, which one we're going to take somebody to based on how sick or injured they are, right? We've got the level one trauma center all the way down to the local critical access hospital. And we've got things in between, right? And so this even applies to your normal, for those of you that do semi-regular wilderness response, you might have a lot of choices and you might not have necessarily say written a a formal medical response plan, but you actually, you kind of already have one in the back of your head because you know that if I have this level injury, these are the only two hospitals I'm even in my brain going to contemplate sending people to. Right. And so you've already kind of done some of this. And so it's, it's important. Yeah. When you go into these new areas that you take the time to learn them so that you do know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. See, once again, he made my words useful to people. Okay, so other than my team, other than just me, what other additional EMS resources are available? I may be one of two providers or one of one providers in a relatively extended care scenario, but at some point, depending on the nature of the injury of my peeps, I mean, in most situations, in most current sort of environments, you don't typically throw somebody in the back of a pickup truck and drive all the way to that tier one hospital, even if you're in the wilderness, right? You throw them in the back of a pickup truck to get them down the fire road or whatever, whatever road you can get the vehicle down to go ultimately link up with an EMS agency to put them in an ambulance that has additional supplies, a roof, some yeah. cover for rain, maybe some, some maybe heating or, even air heat in or air conditioning. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? So you should know where those are beforehand. And if you're, you really think that the probability is non-zero that you might need their help, it may not hurt to reach out to them and be like, hey, just wanted to let you know, like we're doing this thing for the next 10 days. We're going to be here. I've looked at the map of your local area. I think this seems like a pretty good link up point. Do you agree? Or do you know of something better that I don't know about? So yeah. When we talk about EMS resources, it's not only the resources you have on scene or on site as part of your team. It's the adjacent agencies or the agencies in the area that operate in that area of operations that you should probably be aware of and maybe even make contact with before you go, depending on what you're doing. Exactly. That leads to to another unique or, or a set of skills that a lot of folks don't really think about, but in a lot of parts of the country here in the U.S., and I think I can generally say this for most of the world, we think about EMS as just EMS, but there's, there is actually a bit of a difference between a functional EMS agency and then a search and rescue or a some sort of extrication agency. We've got friends. We do it ourselves. Lots of folks that do SAR. We've done plenty of SAR. Being on a SAR team, volunteer or paid, they both exist. Most of them are volunteer, just like EMS, but those SAR teams may come with a different set of capabilities that the local EMS agency does not have. And knowing whether there's SAR resources available could be useful, right? They typically come with soaps and boots and backpacks and things that EMS agencies don't, right? Unless they're attached to one. And there are, we know of, I can name one off the top of my head. There's an EMS agency that's associated with a search and rescue organization, but it doesn't mean that the same people that are volunteering on their ambulance are also the same people that are doing the ground pounding or the SAR work. They could have some members that are SAR members only, but don't do EMS. They could have some EMS members that only do EMS. And they might have some folks that play in both spaces, but it is important to seek out not only the local EMS agencies, but also your search and rescue or extrication resources. And that gets us to 
extrication. Ultimately, as I just mentioned a minute ago, you're going to need ground and possibly aviation assets to get a really, really hurt person from where they got hurt to the doctor place. So knowing where your ground resources are, along with aviation assets, is important. There's a loose parallel I'll draw here. A lot of folks that don't really think about this don't understand this, but most I often draw correlations to urban EMS agencies. Most EMS agencies, excuse me, most urban fire rescue or fire or rescue agencies have pre-plans that include like knowing which tow companies in the area have which capability for what kind of vehicle, right? That same sort of thing applies. You're not going to need a heavy wrecker in the middle of the woods per se, but there could be, for example, I'll use, I'll use an example from one of the places we teach at quite often, right? There is a local climbing guide service there in that area that does, takes people climbing in the local area. If it turns out you need some more help or you need assistance in that manner, they could be a resource. Who knows? You should figure that out. That was kind of a crummy example, but it's the best one I can come up with off the cuff. So we'll go with it. Now, it's actually a fairly decent example because a lot of places and I think a lot of, at least in the United States, talking to a couple of guys I know who've done this work over like England, there's a, a lot of times if you're in pretty popular like hiking in wilderness areas, recruiting help on the trail is sometimes pretty easy to do. Mm -hmm. Most outdoorsy folks are usually pretty good people willing to help, especially somebody else that's injured. It's like, hey, it's going to take that SAR team we've talked about a couple hours to mobilize and get up here. And you guys want to be a hero for the next four hours and help us start carrying this dude? You'd be surprised how many people are willing to help. Trick becomes when you're you know, more on those expedition type things and there is nobody else around that knowing who those resources are, because then you are having to wait and get those extra assets in there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, my example wasn't completely crap, so we'll go with it. No, you're good. And then finally, this, this often gets overlooked as well. And I think it's important and I'm glad you put it in the outline, Sean. If I were to go do, here, here's a perfect example. I did some expeditionary support for a class last year, and I had a patient sort of fall out on me at one point during this class. What the class was is irrelevant. We'll just call it a cool thing in the woods class. But I wasn't really super attuned to the local plants, local animals, and it was in, it was in the Pacific Northwest, right? And it didn't really, because I hadn't spent a whole lot of time there, I'm up to speed now. But I live in the East Coast of the United States. It's actually pretty dry and hot at times. And I wasn't quite mentally ready for the fact that lack of humidity, which is something I just live with in the mid-Atlantic, <laughs> was actually going to have an impact on people. When it's dry and hot, you end up losing moisture and you don't really feel sweaty as much because it's dry, right? And so I wasn't staying on top of hydration and stuff for folks. And, and one of our participants fell out because they weren't drinking any water. And I hadn't put two and two together. So if you're going to a place that you're not super familiar with, a little research, some check-in into the weather, the plants, regional or local venomous or non-venomous species that you may have to mm -hmm. manage, right? I mean, I don't get bit by turtles often where I live, but it turns out that there are parts of this country where you can actually get attacked by a turtle. Believe it or yeah. not, I just learned this recently. 
And uh, you should probably be prepared for how to not get your ass kicked by the turtle when it turns out the turtle bites one of your butts. So, yeah. Well, that's the same thing, right? So East Coast guys go out west like so you're in Arizona. Now scorpions become a thing, which Mm -hmm. there's a couple of good ones out there. And most are, I won't say benign, they'll sting and if it's going to hurt, but they're not going to necessarily kill you, right? It's nobody wants one. Same thing like, I mean... Pretty much everywhere in the U.S. has got a poisonous snake, right? So that's, if you're familiar with them, be familiar with them. We did an episode on snakes. It's not all that exciting, in my opinion. But knowing about, if you're going someplace new, that, yeah, it's like, oh, hey, scorpions are a thing. Maybe I should brush up on which which ones are the more serious versions, like which ones can cause my patients any an actual, like, significant harm pretty quickly, but which ones are more of an irritant, like a bee sting. Because there is a difference, right? Not every, not all scorpions are created equal. Some are extremely dangerous and some not so much. So nobody still wants to get stung by one, but familiarizing yourself with them. And then what, what is, what's the treatment plan, right? Like I generally out here, we don't worry too much about scorpions. Okay. Snake bite. Yeah. There's plenty of snakes that bite out here. So that you're up on, but you know, you change an environment. Same thing with plants telling people it's like, Hey, by the way, stay away from those. Same thing. You go out West. There are certain cacti that will latch on and embed themselves into the skin. And you've got to be very cautious when pulling those things out or telling people just straight up, stay away from that one. Because if it gets in you, it's going to hurt for us to pull that stuff out with a pair of pliers. And then, of course, if you're traveling overseas, you know, it's like you're going with a, a group to a different country to do some sort of adventure, wilderness, backcountry event you know maybe it's just hiking and camping in a foreign country brush up on all those local things because those are the things you're going to see poison ivy is no longer your biggest concern there might be some other plant that's out there that's like ooh, wow don't brush up against this thing because it's really going to be bad for you it's going to make you sick like just from pretty simple contact or it's going to embed micro little hairs inside you that are going to get infected that's going to become a problem so anyway that sounds Really, really fun. It's not. It's not. So I guess okay. <laughs> part of that then leads into your risk assessment, right? So, yeah. Kevin, this is for you. We're not talking about the GAR, death to the GAR. So what we want to do, just kidding, GAR is a GAR. I don't even know what the, uh, I don't even know what GAR stands for anymore off the top of my head. Uh, but it's it's a version of a risk assessment, basically. Mm-hmm. But you want to do a risk assessment, and this is going to kind of help you in your planning determine where you're going to focus your resources, right? This can help you determine how big of a medical support team you need to have with you. Are you good just being yourself, or are the likelihood of some pretty significant injuries or illness dictate that you might want to have another paramedic or have a physician or a couple of EMTs or some wellness first responders, something else that's with you. So you're going to determine your risk and it could be, and again, this is going to be dependent on what you're going to do in support. Like you can do a risk assessment of the overall operation, the expedition, the trip, whatever it is. And then you can do it by particular specific events. Like, Hey, this day, this is going to be some backcountry adventure trip. People are going to do all kinds of stuff. So basic hiking, they're going to do some rafting. They're going to do a little rappelling, some something, right? And so you could have an overall for the general trip, like overall this trip, moderate risk. Chances are somebody's going to get hurt. 
how bad we don't know but then particular events like say the repelling uh you know they're they're inspected everything's good unlikely this is going to be an event but the rafting well you can never really guarantee the conditions of the water and if somebody falls out who knows what's going to happen right so events are rated under the likelihood and the severity so how likely is this thing going to happen so how likely is somebody going to fall out of a raft and if they do what's the level of injury going to be is it going to be minor or is it going to be really severe like so you're going to rate your stuff based on those. There's different ways to do this. There's some simple block charts that people use, little color-coded green, yellow, red, et cetera, to codify these things. And so if something is pretty likely and the consequences can be very severe, that's something you should plan for on your medical response, right? So if it's likely and there's a good chance it's really going to mess somebody up, you should be prepared for that. On the opposite end of it, if it's pretty unlikely, and even if it does happen, the risk to the individual is pretty low, probably not a lot of thought needs to go into that one, right? You might even just be able to like, all right, we're not even going to discuss that in here. You know, if it happens, well, we'll deal with it when the time comes. You know, that's one that's, again, because the likelihood of it's being a severe one with it is pretty slim, chances are you'll figure it out. And if not, you're a good backcountry medic at this point, right? you'll be able to take care of it. I mean, then you're going, but then why do I need this whole plan? Well, we're going to talk about that later. But so after we've gotten all this information, we're going to put together our initial plan. And then you kind of just got to give it that initial, can we even support this thing realistically with what we've got? Then you're going to need to The answer is always yes. You always go. (laughs) Always. It's always a go. Right. Right. Like 99% of the time, yeah, it's like, I don't think there's ever been a, well, okay, there's probably been a few instances like Everest guys like, ah, you know what? I know you just gave me 25 grand, but we're not even going to try this. And Mm. I think the, they've gotten smarter over the years and that actually happens a lot more often than not now. But back in the day, it's like, you paid, let's go. Yeah, I know the weather's shit, but we're going to do this anyway. Right. So is it even feasible to execute? Maybe the reason it's not feasible to execute is you put yourself too many, we'll call it, technological restrictions. Like if we can't have five life pack 15 monitors at every station, then we just can't do this. Or if I don't have a medical response crew of 25 critical care certified paramedics, this just can't happen. Well, that's really not feasible right there. Right. Like try gathering 25 critical care paramedics in one place that aren't part of a large aviation crew, right. Helicopter transport guys. It's generally not going to happen. Right. So you, Nope. You might want to then step back and go, okay, have I overwritten it and made it so difficult that we can't do this? Or is this really something that can't be supported? And chances are it's it's probably on your end. Not to say that it can't be. The overall, the operation's crazy, but you're not going to do that. So then what you'd like to do is get the rest of your medical guys together, if there are anyone, or if not, and you're the sole medical guy, because you've determined that, or maybe this is a whole a lot of times a paid gig doing expedition support. And it's like, yeah, you're the one medical dude we're bringing. You can train the rest of us in some first aid, but you're it. Like, okay. So then you want to get some of those other senior group leaders or trip leaders with you. And basically you want to war game your plan and see, are there any gaps in here that need addressing? Because somebody else might have done this trip before and go, hey, at this particular phase, we really need to pay attention to this. Or once we get on the other side of this thing, there's no more trucks, right? Because once we're on foot, once we've hiked and we've crossed over this ridge, that's it. We're now out of truck range until we hike it back over. The only other option to get somebody out is by helicopter. 
And that's good information mm-hmm. to have. Maybe you didn't have that before. So that's good to know. And then, of course, revise your plan. You know, what happens if that road we plan to use washed out? Do we have a plan? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff, right? So then after you figured it all out, revise your plan as necessary. Maybe it's good. Maybe you've been doing this a while, or maybe this is a pretty standard plan. You're just reviewing to see if it needs updated for this year's event. Good to go. Once it's all good, you finalize, you publish it, and everybody's happy. So, all right, next well, thing. Yeah. How do we determine this stuff? These are just some general ideas. There's more, I'm sure. These are going to be pretty big, pretty small. Kind of depends on the scope. First and foremost, if you've done this before and it's an annual event that you participate in, did you learn anything from last year? Did you even do an AAR on what could have gone better or worse in your previous events? That's usually a pretty good source if you're going back to the same place on an annual basis. I don't know a whole lot about that. What's that big party called in Nevada or Arizona or whatever? Where Burning they Man. The city. Burning Man, right? I'm, I've got to believe that the guys that did the first Burning Man learned some stuff. and They were like, hey, <laughs> we should probably make some plans, right? So if you, even if you've gone to the region, but maybe not to the exact location previously, there's probably some things you can take away from that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For example, don't ever put Mike in charge of stuff because it turns out he's just grumpy. And <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. Yet every year we let you be in charge of stuff. Every year I'm in charge. I don't know what's happening. Except this year, right? 2024 is going to be first year. Yeah, buddy. I was thinking about that the other day, in fact. <laughs> National, global health agencies, right? I mean, if you're going to another part of the world, there's actually resources out there. There's a lot of information on the interwebs, a lot of open source information. One of the greatest inventions in mankind was the internet to allow us to share information. So, hey, why not use it? You can even ask ChatGPT, like, hey, is there like a thing for a plan <laughs> for this place I'm going? Write me a medical response plan. As long as it wasn't before 2020 or it wasn't after 2021, you're good. But uh, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of information on the internet. That's a good starting point. The World Health Organization actually keeps track of things like regional viruses and bugs and all of all of the things you might want to know about, right? They're actually a pretty good resource for water details and things like that for different areas of the world, different infections and, and things that could occur in a certain part of the world. But it's actually a pretty good resource. The CDC, right? Again, a little bit more U.S.-focused, but they keep track of the big stuff going on, so to speak. And you might want to know if uh, there's an outbreak of a particular this, that, or the other, wherever it is you're heading. And again, with that, the U.S. State Department does issue travel advisories to regions of the world that are impacted by weather or natural disasters or things of that nature that you want to stay on top of. Oftentimes in a lot of parts of the world where people do expeditions for various reasons, whether it's recreation or some sort of investigatory scientific experiment, if there's like a thing, like a weather event that occurs in that part of the world, you can end up severely impacting the local resources and that needs to go into your plan. Yeah. Yeah. At that point you become Uh, alone and unafraid or maybe just a little afraid. And Sean put a great one here on the list that I hadn't even thought about, but embassies, right? You can actually reach out to the embassy and be like, Hey, tell me about X, Y, or Z. I don't know how any of that works. I would find out if I ever had to do that, but it is a source of information. The embassies in a given nation should be able to give you some local information on what to care about. Yeah, and even with that, too, is 
depending on obviously where you're going, they might be able to put you in contact or give you other regional information, like whatever that nation's CDC equivalent is, right? And or something to that effect, and put you like, hey, here's some other resources you could try because here's our limited stuff, and they're going to have they're going to track a lot of stuff depending on which country you're in. Some not so much as, as others, but so it all depends where you're going. But yeah, you know, your local embassies or the consulates are another source that you can get some information. Now you might also get a hold of them, send an email to kind of a generic info request place, and they're going to be like, yeah, we don't really do that, but uh, try this one. And you're like, okay, thanks. And you might not get anything, but it's something you can, it's a consideration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, again, using the internets, you're, State Department contacts, whatever methodology you choose here. Again, local medical providers, hospitals, EMS agencies. If you really think you're going to be doing something super hairy, and though it's a low probability, high risk endeavor, you might want to touch base with those local agencies, as I mentioned earlier, and be like, hey, man, what are your capabilities? It turns out we're in a bad way. What kind of help can we get from you if this goes sideways? I found just in my years of EMS from the U.S., that there's a lot of local knowledge from a local agency around, like, especially more yep. rural or wilderness environments. You got the the grizzly old guy that's been volunteering in this system for 15 years, 20 years. He knows exactly every trail in and out of where people get hurt most often and all those things. Even at a relatively local level, the local agencies and the local providers can provide you quite a bit of information and even give you things that, that you weren't thinking about that you should probably plan for just in case. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then finally, believe it or not, Google is a really <laughs> awesome resource. Or if, like the or internet if you feel like you want to Yahoo it. Yeah, I mean, Jeeves it could. still exist. That's always my favorite to go back and check on. It does, actually. I learned does that the really? other day. Ask Jeeves is still a thing. Yep. Holy cow. I mean, if you're trying to use the the, the fancy new age stuff, you should probably bing it. You know, because <laughs> they got the whole chat GPT integration. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you're, I'm just being snarky now. Yeah, yeah. And then, if at all possible, and we talked about tabletops earlier, but if it turns out that you have, this doesn't necessarily apply to, say, like scientific expeditions, though it could, but especially if you're taking a bunch of individuals on a recreation trip, if you can get there a day or two early before your client or your your the folks that are doing this trip arrive, and touch base with the local agencies. Make sure you have the right contact information. Do you know how to get additional resources if possible? If you're there, if you can get there, drive the route, right? You can do a whole lot of planning with a map, and then it turns out that, uh, oh, yeah, that bridge that was on that map, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if you think you're doing something that could be kind of risky, there isn't anything wrong if you have the time and the resources to go visit the local hospital and touch base with the head of their emergency department or the the charge nurse that runs the joint and be like, hey, yeah. I just want to introduce myself. Right. Don't plan to ever see you again in my life. But if it turns out the unexpected or the unfortunate occurs, like just wanted to let you know we're hanging out doing this thing. And they'll be like, cool, don't really care. But at least you did your due diligence to make sure that they were aware of your presence. And then finally, and this is a big one. If you think you're going to need air assets to get people out of a place and you've kind of done some pre-planning on it, it's a good idea to survey the landing zones and if possible, touch base with the air assets that you're going to potentially be calling upon. Because you might have picked like what you thought was an awesome LZ, and then they're going to be like, oh, it turns out we know that spot. It's got a horrible approach, and the yeah. wind always blows from this direction. And we're like, it looks cool on the map, 
But the way the wind comes off this mountain or the way the wind comes off this ridge, it always makes it hell to try to land there. So we would really prefer to use this LZ instead. Thanks. Yeah. No, I mean, solid points. It's something you should think about. Yeah. Um, and, and again, anything else in the testing that I missed? Well, I would, I would say the landing zones is probably one of the well, often overlooked because people would be like just doing kind of initial map survey and then pull up some Google Earth. And depending on when that Google Earth image was taken, your LZ can now be overgrown or it can now be a 7-Eleven, right? So going out there to visit it and be like, ah, well, okay, we need an alternate. Where's some of our other places, right? So, and again, this varies. Where are you going? So good news. I'm a little disappointed, but missing a few pieces in this. So overall now, what are the big key elements you have to have inside of this thing? Your overall plan. Who's your team? What are your different response plans, like based on types maybe, or severity. And we talked about that could be very basic ones. You're the sole resource. So anything that happens, you grab you, you grab your A bag and off you go, right? Two, a little more detail, like, you know, specifically like me and this guy, you're going to go to this thing and my partner's going to take, maybe, maybe he's going to take some rope access stuff and I have the medical stuff because we might have to get down to a person initially. And then this follow-on crew is now going to bring this package with them. And this one particular guy, he's going to come with the truck so that when we get our guy out, we know we're driving in this truck with this guy to this landing zone, right? You can include your maps. A lot of these will have pictures of the maps of maybe where the central camp is located, where the landing zones are at. Might be if you have separate like training or operational areas for, like Mike uses like the scientific surveys, like, hey, here's base camp and here's the three big areas that we're going to go look at. Are these picture pieces necessarily applicable to everybody or every event? Not necessarily, but sometimes it helps to orient certain people. Some people are very visual and they want to see, oh, okay, this is here. And okay, so when I leave the camp, I've got to be on this road to take the right hand turn to go to this place. Especially like if you don't get that chance to drive it. Or maybe like Mike's mentioned, sometimes there's a couple of events that Mike's been on where the team is helicoptered up onto the mountain. They kick all their kit out and everybody's there. There are no trucks, right? There's, there's no vehicles. The only way back out is with the helicopter, you know, and then it's the same thing. Will that helicopter land anywhere up there? No, because depending where you're at, maybe that angle of slope does no longer jive with that helicopter crew. Like they're like, yeah, no, we can't land on that. So then you have to have a plan. Like, are you on like glaciated or snow covered terrain where you got to put, put somebody in a sled and ski them mm-hmm. or drag them down to a, a place where you can access them? Or are you just going to have to do the old school and, pick them up and carry them, et cetera, right? So big ones else, things, subsections you're going to want to make sure are in there, though. Communications is always a big one. What's our primary mm, means of communications, yeah. right? What are the, what are the, you, do you have radio frequencies, telephone numbers? Who are you calling specifically? Like, am I calling this hospital? Maybe you have arrangements that they're providing some sort of temporary medical direction for you while you're visiting this place. You know, is that a separate phone number? Do you have one of those, like we mentioned in a previous episode, do you have a dedicated teleconsult line, right? So make sure that people know those. What are their alternates? Is there an emergency backup? Like, hey, when in doubt, you're going to go to this big red box that's painted emergency cones, and you're going to break out the one satellite phone that we have, right? So just know what your comm plan is, and it should list generally in there some sort of hierarchy, like, and I don't want to necessarily put this into incident command, speak, although we kind of default to that a lot in the U.S. just because that's mm-hmm. how everybody functions, right, is 
So if, if we do have a pretty significant event, and I mean an actual significant injury or illness occur where it's like, okay, we kind of got to stop doing whatever it is we were doing. Now, who's in charge of starting to coordinate other follow-on actions? Do you kind of want to have some sort of leadership hierarchy, like who is the senior medical guy that's going to make the overall determination of, does this person need to be evacuated? Yes or no. And if they do, what kind of a timeline do we have? Like, okay, we've got a few hours, no rush. Let's just get them stabilized, coordinate whatever available assets are out there, and then we can go. There's just a number of things. So those are your big ones, right? Just making sure everybody's got familiarity with those big pieces, the leadership, the general plan, like who's responding to what, with what, and then the communications. And if you have at least those three key elements, you're going to be doing all right. Then if you're able to add in all the rest of that stuff, like we talked about, your environmental hazards, your weather, et cetera, even better. So there is a, a minimum, I would say, level to one of these plans. And then there's the full Monty. Kind of wrapping all that up, you can make this thing as detailed as you want it to be. You got to be cautious in that and that you don't make it so detailed that it becomes confusing. People are like, wait, this is an omega level response. What do we do now? I don't know. And keep it simple, right? This is a green, yellow, red. Red is obviously our most severe injured peoples. Yellows is somewhat, you know, a moderate green is, eh. All right, let's get there. Let's see what's going on. And you move from there. I mean, they're, again, bringing it back to the urban side, right? Depending on your dispatch system with the EMD and everything else, there are anywhere from four to six different types of dispatch codes. And this is different priorities, BLS, ALS, lights and sirens, no lights and sirens, lights and sirens, but yeah, not so fast. So don't get crazy where people don't get it. Yeah, I still, like, half the systems I've worked in, I don't know what all the fancy words mean. Because I just, like, they're alpha through gamma responses and type yeah. 47 or 53. Like, it's it gets confusing, right? Yeah, so that's what I'm saying is don't make it so detailed it gets confusing. And at the same time, don't just go, and our medical response plan is if something happens, call Mike. Right? That's You better hope that's a pretty one of those low probability low severity kind of events you're going out to support. If if your medical plan is, uh, call Mike, we'll figure it out from there. So don't make it so low grade that you have no information. Like, crap, what's the name for the number of that hospital? How do I contact the ED if I'm bringing somebody in? Well, you don't want to be trying to Google that as you're bouncing down the road on your way to a hospital or right up with that other EMS agency. Like, how am I going to contact this ambulance I'm supposed to link up with? Well, you probably should have figured that out, right? Yeah, that's the thing you probably will really want to know before you're trying to call them and coordinate. Right? Yeah, nothing worse than like... <laughs> Basically, that's the right. theme of the entire episode. Make a damn plan. Yeah, make the plan. plan. So I think the last piece that is in there is you got to have at least a plan to start with, right? And it kind of comes down to that neural mapping piece, or as some people like to call it, muscle memory. It's not that your muscles remember, it's your brain remembers. And so even having written the plan... Mm-hmm read through the plan, maybe done a little wargaming, tabletopping with your team, with the other people on the, on the expeditionary or whatever it is. When something happens, your brain's already kind of processed what your response is going to be. And so when the thing happens, you're like, ah, we go to do the thing and off we go, right? It's just like you're being a paramedic and you're going into your first code and you're like, oh shit, I'm in charge. I got to be the adult this time, right? Then after like your second, maybe your third, it's kind of like, all right, all right, let's go do this. And you're a little less stressed out now about getting to the code because now you've seen this, you know what you have to do. 
it's easier to come into the scene. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're, you weren't first on. You can look around, see what's been done, say, okay, hey, let's get this going now. And have we tried this? What's the status of this? And if you're first on scene, it's the same way. It's like, okay, here's my priorities. Let's start knocking these things out. So if you've written your plan and you've done it a decent enough job at it, should something occur, your brain's already kind of got the general framework of what you're supposed to be doing now. And it's just going to kind of cut down a little bit of the cognitive load of thinking on the fly and just like, oh, crap. Okay, who do we call? What do we do? It's like, oh, you look at my list. Like, okay, here's the number of the hospital. Boom. Here's that number to that local helicopter EMS crew that we're going to call to come pick these people up, whatever it is. What's that saying? Prior planning prevents piss poor performance? Yeah, theoretically. We have great plan and still perform like assholes. But... (laughs) Well, I mean, that anything else you want to mention? <laughs> we're just going to put that in a quick analogy for you sports folks. Yay, sports ball. I'm not a sports guy. Nobody ever goes out there in football with a plan to lose the game. Yet teams go out there and get their asses handed. Right. So, mm-hmm. hey, we had a plan. We had all these amazing plays we were going to run and we suck. So, what do we do? Let's fire the coach because apparently it's his fault the quarterback can't throw. Whatever. Yeah. So I'm known in a certain place I used to work. I'm known for a saying of that's that's fucked up like a football bat. Exactly. But if it turns out you're expecting the football bat to be successful, you're probably not going to win. So it's when you should have brought your soccer racket. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Anything else you want to mention? No, I think that's about it on this one. All right, but I'm just going to hit the stop button right now, and we will talk at all of you. Because I'm last time I said we'll talk to you, we don't really talk to anybody. We just talk at each other, and then you listen. So thanks for doing that. We appreciate it, and <laughs> we'll talk at you later. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMS OTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.